Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 85. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today we're going to be talking about sex, specifically how sex is taught to us. We'll be discussing how sex is taught in our school systems, in the US specifically, but also in places in Europe, such as Sweden and the UK. We'll also hopefully get into some of our personal experiences, why we think sex is taught the way it is in our country. I definitely will speak to some of my frustrations about how it is taught and how I, and hopefully Kip will contribute to this as well, how I hope to teach sex to my kids. So Kip, I know I've sent you a bunch of articles to read, and I know just because sex is such a big part of human life and human culture, we both have stuff to say about this, but can we start talking about how sex is taught in our school systems? There are actually some surprising statistics about sex ed, and what did you find most shocking when we were reading these? So at least looking at the United States, only 23 states mandate sex ed at all, and only 13 require it to be medically accurate, which I find to be both shocking and intriguing because there's clearly a reason for that. And to me, this entire topic brings up issues of discomfort, and I would say necessary discomfort, where we have to push through certain hesitations we might have in discussing certain issues, because with any number of social issues, our hesitation to discuss them often leads to ignorance and problems related to those issues. And I think it's important to address our sources of discomfort. And so I would begin by saying, to me, one reason that sexuality and sex itself seem to be such sensitive topics is that they connect us to certain urges and traits that we often associate with the animal kingdom or quote-unquote lesser beings, and I have a whole spiel on that. But I would say that mentality seems unfair to me because we believe ourselves to be superior and almost detached from the evolutionary processes that led to sex and sexuality, which are necessary for certain organisms' reproduction. And I think fear of being animalistic or barbaric in some way, which is a very loaded term, leads us ironically to not discuss those topics and actually for a lot of harm to be done because of the misunderstandings people have and also harm in the stigma that is created surrounding sexuality, which I think in healthy measure and in the appropriate contexts is an absolutely necessary part of life for most people. But I acknowledge that that does not include everyone. For example, people who identify as asexual and don't feel any strong proclivity to certain sexual impulses. Definitely. And I think it just ends up being to our detriment because we end up harming ourselves. Our pregnancy rates in our country are higher than most developed countries in the world. Our treatment of women sexually ends up being especially harmful and invoking a lot of anxieties in our culture and produces, I think, some of the highest sexual assault rates, especially on college campuses and universities in the country, because we're so uncomfortable talking to our kids and talking to students from a young age about sex. I don't know about your personal experiences, but for me, I was first taught sex ed in fifth grade, and I went to a pretty progressive public school system in Maryland. Everything was very biologically centered. Everything's very focused on let's name these body parts. Let's say penis out loud. Let's say vagina out loud, but no focus on reciprocity, what it means to have sex with someone and how that implicates two people treating each other on an equal level and experiencing not just a biological interaction, but one of joy and pleasure. 
And I would say trust and connection in positive examples of sexual expression. Absolutely. And I think that's not to say people can't be sexually liberated. And that's a whole nother topic about sexual promiscuity in Western culture. But particularly how children from a very young age are, yes, taught that sex is where babies come from, but especially in our modern era where contraception is so widely used, the purpose and function of sex is especially for people in the early stages of their lives, it is not biological. It is about seeking intimacy, connection, about wanting to trust people, and about people needing to treat each other equitably and respectfully. And when I was young, maybe there was some mention of, you do this with someone you love, and it's a big decision, and this will define who you are, which is another crazy thing. But ultimately, nothing was spoken about the sentiment and the importance of how both partners are entitled to joy, pleasure, and then responsibility in sexual encounters and relationships. Did you have different experiences when you were growing up? Well, in our school system in Wellesley, Massachusetts, for those who may not know, I think it was relatively progressive. We also learned certain anatomy and also made the connection biologically in fifth grade and in later stages of middle school and high school, talked a bit more about sexuality, but it was usually in relation to contraception, STDs, STIs, pregnancy, and never really about the emotional, the intimate, the personal aspects of sexuality, which I think leads children or young adults to feel ashamed of sexual feeling. And that really bothers me that shame is so closely tied in our culture, and I think in cultures around the world, to a set of feelings and beliefs and principles that for most people are so fundamental or will become fundamental in certain parts or certain eras in their lives because that's not fair, simply put. We never really had those conversations. And with my family, I was told that if I had any questions, they would be answered. And I had a few, but it's also very tricky because in many ways, you don't even speak the language that you're being asked to discuss. So you wouldn't know how to ask those questions. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily a sexual language, but to me, it represents a huge space in our lives where feelings are almost like no other and experiences and the way we connect with other people are so different from anything else that we do struggle to define it. And of course, there have been poems and novels and other art forms trying to depict sexual feelings. At the core of the issue of sexual education, we struggle to define something that is so surreal in many ways and so hard to define. And I do think that's because it comes from an almost subconscious level. And I'm not saying that it is entirely subconscious, but I don't think we can put every sexual feeling into words. And the way our education system works, the way we communicate with other human beings is often linguistically. So I sympathize with educators and parents regarding the difficulty of how to educate. But as a member of a younger generation, someone who is still being educated, I wish I had had more experiences of open communication and non-judgmental discourse surrounding sexuality and sexual education because that's not what our society has. And as sympathetic as educators and my family were, those weren't really the interactions we had because I didn't know what to ask. And I don't think they really knew what to say because it is a very fraught topic. 
Exactly. And even what you were saying earlier about open communication, a lot of articles that I've read now that are talking about how parents, teachers, any sort of guardian or mentor can be more open with children in effort to normalize sex. At the end of the day, it's frustrating because what does open communication mean? What does being open about sex, what does being direct about sex really mean? I read these articles and I sympathize with parents because people are like, you need to have the hard conversations. But it's like, how do those hard conversations manifest themselves? What exactly can you say to make the atmosphere more comfortable? What can you say to make your child, who may be a jaded 13-year-old who wants nothing to do with you, and I've been there, How do you make that child want to open up with you and talk about sex with someone who in the past they would never dream of doing so? I think there are little ways that we can do this. In the New York Times article that we read, and this is mostly pertaining to women, and I do think there is a huge disconnect in this country, especially with young men and women, about women's entitlement to sexual pleasure. And this article specifically talks about that. And it says that parents, when labeling infants' body parts, they say, you know, here's your nose, here are your toes. Parents often include a boy's genitals, but not a girl's. And as Kip was saying earlier, it's really hard to say to a child, oh, we're here to answer any questions you have when something is unnamed, completely unnamed. You don't have any language for it at all because it is, as this article says, literally unspeakable. And to me, the idea of the unspeakable is especially telling because there are other things that our society, our families, individually, we don't want to talk about. And I think those are the things that become issues for society because people who might experiment in those realms, let's say narcotics, for example, will feel ashamed of their behavior and won't share it with people who might help them or clarify certain behavior. And I don't personally align sex with drugs but many people do. And when you take that approach, sexually curious people, which accounts for a majority of the population, I would say, won't know how to ask those questions because it's been told to them or heavily implied that you absolutely, under no circumstances, discuss that topic. It's taboo. It's wrong. And in terms of women's rights to sexual pleasure, I've been bombarded by this image during this conversation of girls being taught about sexuality with a metaphor of candy or tape, the candy metaphor being that students are asked to pass around a chocolate and watch as it smudges everyone's hand and compare that to a young woman, or the tape metaphor, which I find equally as troubling, being that students are asked to pass around a strip of scotch tape and make the parallel between the less adhesive and now dirty piece of scotch tape and a young woman who might be more sexually active than her peers which absolutely blows me away. And I know there are people listening or potentially people who aren't who would say that it's dangerous to be sexually active or sexuality itself is a dangerous thing. But I would say that it's more dangerous when someone is uninformed or accused of becoming something subhuman when they are sexually active or sexually curious about themselves and the world they live in. Both those metaphors evoke ideas that you're forever changed, you're tainted, you're damaged in some way, you're melting, you're melted in some way. You're not that same crisp piece of scotch tape, you're not as pure as you used to be, you're not as whole. 
that general dichotomy that is so existent in our society of you're either a virgin or you're a whore. It's so pervasive still in the way we view women who are sexually active. And it's true what you were saying. I think most parents in the US, instead of trying to teach their kids about how to communicate about sex and how talking is so important. And that relates to issues of consent, which is a huge issue, especially on college campuses in terms of some of the highest rates of sexual assault in our country's history, which has been going on for decades now. Instead, when talking about sex, they teach their kids about the risks involved in getting sexually transmitted infections or the consequences of getting pregnant at a young age. Instead of talking about how to treat your partner, it's taking leaps and bounds over the base principles that need to be instilled from the get-go. And of course, neither of us are saying that there are not risks associated with sexual behavior, but I think we would both agree that it's very telling to begin with a negative rhetoric and say there may be additional positive consequences using the same vernacular as opposed to saying sex and sexuality can be a wonderful, fulfilling, and informative part of your life, but you should also keep in mind possible negative consequences. I think it sends a very strong message when you start with the negative, and I think that's what most United States sex ed programs do. And to look at the European programs that we read about, I would love to know what your first impressions were about some of these progressive programs. What initially just really struck me about sex education in Sweden, for example, was just how young it starts and how awesome I think that is. If you can start teaching a five-year-old about the body parts and the idea of sex that I became aware of in fifth grade when I was 10 years old and old enough now that I still remember it, I think that's invaluable because at a younger age, you just begin to normalize that biological stuff. If you get that going at such a young age, once you're a little older at perhaps fifth grade level, you can get into the stuff that's really important about the emotional and intimate aspects of sex. And I'm really glad that you describe it as a normalization because it's usually a word I associate with a lot of negative behavior that we normalize. And if we could normalize the knowledge of sex and sexuality instead of normalizing the fear of being a sexual being and being tainted or wrong or animalistic in some way, then I think we would have a more perceptive society. And this article also explains that it's not discussions of intimacy, but foundational discussions of self-image and sexuality and how love can operate between two people. And children witness interactions between their parents that I think relate to sexuality that can absolutely be discussed if they are allowed to see their parents hugging and kissing because those are also, in certain ways, tied to sexual behavior. And I don't think it's inappropriate to respectfully and articulately discuss that with a child. And I think discussion is key. I'd really love to know how you feel about a more Socratic version as opposed to a lecture-based sexual education. I think some of the exercises they do that are more group-based, that are really getting kids involved in a discussion about intimacy. I mean, one of the exercises they did contained even just a picture of animals like bears or alligators hugging and asking the kids, why are they hugging? And one girl answered, because they like each other. Then the teacher asks the class to think about who they like the most. And several kids say their mom or dad. And one girl names her little sister. And then the teacher asks, how does it feel when that person hugs you? 
one boy replies, I feel warm from the inside. It's like there are little butterflies in my stomach. I think this is an awesome representation of a lesson that is designed to get kids, even at the age of five, talking about thinking about the kind of intimacy and closeness that makes them feel good and then compare it to what does not feel good. That's something so easy for parents to do. I really am a personal believer that, as many of these articles say as well, it really starts at the parent's level. And that means if I were to have a partner one day, I'd hug them and then maybe I'd ask my child, why do you think I hugged this person? (laughs) And maybe they'd be like, I don't know. And I'd tell them it's because I really like this person. And just getting that kind of discussion started from a really basic level can teach kids how to express affection in a really healthy way. And that can lead into greater discussions about intimacy. Now, I can already envision critics saying that if you teach kids about sex and sexuality at a young age, they will be more sexually active, pregnancy rates will skyrocket, STD rates and STI rates will increase. I heard in the back of my head, what about personal space and teaching kids how to not touch people when they don't want to be touched? But I feel like that's a different discussion at the same time. I agree. And in terms of those critics' concerns, which on many levels are valid, researchers have found that on average, teens in the Netherlands do not have sex at an earlier age than those in other European countries or in the United States. Researchers also found that among 12 to 25-year-olds in the Netherlands, most say they had wanted and fun first sexual experiences, but by comparison, 66% of sexually active American teens surveyed said they wished that they had waited longer to have sex for the first time. And with anonymous friends that I spoke to in the weeks leading up to this conversation, many of them female, I noticed similar patterns, albeit anecdotally, and I'm not saying they are statistically significant, but friends of mine said, that they had been so conditioned to feel ashamed of sex or that they may not have waited for the right person, that they felt guilty after their first experiences, even if their partner did nothing wrong and was respectful and consensual in that act. Which leads me back to American culture, which I think is in many ways hypersexualized, but lacks sexual information. And I think that we will continue to see this phenomenon of pop music and movie stars and other celebrities being sexualized and audiences sexualizing them because, again, it is a part of who we are as a species. It is, of course, how we reproduce. It's how we relate very profound feelings of intimacy in certain cases. And I think there is an understandable fascination with that aspect of our biological and psychological identities. And so to me, the hypersexualization we see in our culture is highly correlated to the lack of information that we have and the abundance of information that we seek because we want to be educated as people. We want to know things. And what we find in the end instead is an abundance of false answers from other people who don't know what they're talking about because they weren't educated. And that system perpetuates itself and leads to a number of issues that we've already mentioned. But admittedly, that's my subjective take on it. But also this results in people going to different places to learn about sex. Because as you said, people want to educate themselves. People want to be quote unquote good in bed because that's a valuable quality in our hypersexualized culture. So people more and more are turning to porn to find methods and ways people go about sex, which 
If you've ever seen porn, it's highly androcentric and focused almost entirely on the male. There is no talking going on between the two partners, so we have no idea if there's any sort of consent involved because that would be boring, right? And when there is dialogue, it's laughable and highly unrealistic. Exactly. And this only goes to show that because we are literally failing our children in terms of how they are educated about sex, especially in abstinence-based programs, we are causing them to go to unrealistic and completely ridiculous means to learn about sex. And I agree with you that it is ridiculous, but to someone who's never been sexually involved or sexually active, they wouldn't know that. And so to them, it becomes reality in a very understandable way. And that belief becomes ingrained in their sexual identity and leads to a lot of miscommunication, hurt feelings, and potentially far worse if that misinformation is not corrected at some point. Exactly. And it's as if gender roles are simply reinforced in porn, as I said before, where women are literally taught to please the man. As many of our articles state, women say, oh, my pleasure is dependent on his pleasure. And that leads to just so many different problematic aspects of sex when it comes to having equitable partners in the bedroom. And I want to add, because it has not been addressed in this conversation, I'm a little ashamed of that. We are having a very heteronormative conversation. And I think part of teaching sex in the modern day is teaching about different kinds of families, different kinds of sex, different kinds of sexual orientation and what that means for sex. Because if you only teach heteronormative sex education, then what if you have someone who's gay in class and they don't know how to treat their partner later on and they end up having unhealthy, unbalanced sexual relationships in their future? And I think as our society progresses forward, the best thing we can do is present all sides of the coin when it comes to sex and express it in a way to our kids that doesn't assume anything, doesn't assume that they are heterosexual, but also doesn't imply shame and negative outcomes that come from sex. Yes, there is caution that goes with sex, but most importantly, people need to feel dignified when they have sex. I'm very glad you bring up the heteronormativity point. And of course, there are many aspects of this conversation that we simply don't have time to discuss in one episode. And we will absolutely revisit this and related topics in the future. But as a final avenue of discussion, I'd like to discuss the pros and cons of various resources for sexual education, in my mind being family units or parents, educational systems, or in certain cases, by oneself in pursuit of knowledge or information that they may not already have, which I think is more rare and often can be done in a very unhealthy way. But what do you think about those three? And do you think there are other systems that end up educating us about sex? I think in order to have an adequate and healthy sex education, it has to be a combination of all forces from parents to schools to personal curiosity. And if you're curious about sex, yes, it's hard to have the vocabulary sometimes to ask those questions. And that's where maybe the internet is helpful and people sometimes demonize the internet for having false information, but it is a start and maybe that forms some of the questions you have. But 
But most of all, I think parents and school as a combination are really important because while I implore parents to start from a really young age teaching their child about sex, some people are pro-abstinence. And I think in my personal belief, that is a disservice to your child. However, that's where the role of the school comes in to teach kids the medically accurate version of sex. And I'm reminded of a movie I recently had to watch for a class this past week. And the inciting moment of the story is this girl who has been raised by her mother, who is a religious fanatic, gets her period in the school locker room and is terrified, has no idea what it is. And there is some other horrifying aspects of this movie in that the horror of the movie, it is a horror movie, it's named Carrie. The horror of the movie lies in her becoming a woman and becoming a terror because she gets her period. We can have plenty more to say about that. But what I'm getting at here is the idea that where this girl's mother failed her, her school should not have. And if that means government mandates, if that means federal intervention, then I think that's necessary in order for us to have a healthy population at the end of the day, both mentally and physically. I completely agree with you. And I would hope for a system, as we saw in some of the articles we read, in which education systems and parents are very proactive and cooperative with one another about how sexual education should work. And if there are parents who feel uncomfortable discussing certain topics, they should mention that to the school system so that their child does not go uneducated in that area. And as you were saying, the internet can be a wonderful resource for those who know how to use it and find accurate, respectful, and well-written sources that can educate not only children, but anyone trying to learn about sex and sexuality. And as we've said, there are many things to discuss here. But before we close the episode, what are some things you would like the audience to think about? For me, it really comes down to how much I wish my parents had talked to me about sex. I don't think my dad did at all. I think my mom sort of tried, but pretty late in the game when I was maybe about 15, at least as far as I can remember. So really nothing substantial must have happened before then. And I think that really just goes to show the need to not only legislate better sex education in the US, but also to get used to talking about sex, get used to talking to your kids about sex and the only way you can really do that is by practice. I think we need to practice talking about sex as a society. I agree with you. And while I would encourage parents listening to think about some of the issues we've brought up and also on political spectrums to think about those who might disagree with your stances on sexual education, I would also encourage people our age who may someday be parents to try to have healthy and respectful conversations about sex and sexuality at our current age because I do think certain things, especially conversationally and psychologically, become more difficult as we grow older. And as I've said before, I can sympathize with those who find it hard to talk about some of these topics, but I hope you and I have illustrated how important it is to discuss these. But of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any feedback, input, or opinions of any kind, please reach out to us. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook, where you can like our page and get updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com, and if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with a friend you think might enjoy it or find it informative. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.
And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.